Welcome to the Center Point Podcast, a critical discussion about food and nature and the points that matter. I'm your host, Amy Center, and today I'm talking with Allison Taylor, Chief Sustainability Officer at Archer Daniel Midland, also known as ADM. Thank you for joining us, Allison. I would love to kick off to learn a little bit more about how you got into sustainability. Happy to talk about sustainability and the issues of the day. Sustainability was kind of my thing before the word sustainability came around. I actually credit my mother. My mother was a biology teacher, master's, in fact, uh, in education. When I was young, I would go on trips, my dad and I, to collect things that she was taking to her classrooms to teach them about ecosystems and actually the effect of pollution on ecosystems. My mom was was very into making sure students were aware of that. So I learned a lot about that too. My big treat was getting to work on the bulletin boards in her classroom at the beginning of every school year. And I'm sure that was a really big inspiration for me, not only her being a working parent, but also the fact that she was so smart about these issues a long time ago. And she really taught me about the effect in one place of an ecosystem to something that might happen way downstream or far away. Then I was a biology major too, obviously following in her footsteps when I was in college. Then again, my mother, a good influence, told me I wasn't really good at math and the kind of things you need to be to be a scientist. So environmental law was uh, emerging and I went into environmental law. I am an environmental lawyer in background by training, practice and then went to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. for what was going to be a short period to learn. And I was there for 12 years working in the House and in the Senate and then went into a private company prior to ADM where the sustainability role was just emerging. And so I had the role at that company and then ADM asked me to be their chief sustainability officer a little over five years ago. Sustainability has become a real thing since then. It's really changed a lot, as you know. Yes. Well, I love that. I love cutting edge roles, emerging in new hot topics, diverse areas, and most importantly, that moms know best. We all agree with that. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for telling us a little bit about how you got started in this field. Today, we wanted to dive into a really important topic, which is food versus fuel debate. This has been knocking around, I'm sure, as you have said, for a long time. And I don't think that we've ever had such a clear example of why this is so important as we are living through right now with the war in Ukraine and the parallel or triple crises of the food security crisis, the energy crisis, and climate change all happening simultaneously. So we have this unique moment in time to have a really thoughtful conversation about this. I know that you, Allison, as well as your company has done a lot of thinking about this work. From your perspective, how do you see the food and energy sectors working together or not working together as we try and strive this equitable balance. Yeah, just terrific subject. And thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to think and talk about this. I think that this debate, this discussion has really changed a lot. It's not the same as the one we were having some years ago. I think we're in a different place today for different reasons. And thinking about food and the environment and how to satisfy both of those interests, to put it in a very simple way, is much more in the front of minds of companies, policymakers, you know, even consumers, of course. But then there's also some tools and some development 
developments in the world that have happened that have made a difference as well. Grain and crop processors like us, by the way, we do not own farms, so we procure or buy raw materials in some ways, process them as well, and then typically sell them downstream to a consumer-facing company. And we have a nutrition business and flavors and also colors. We're not all about procuring commodities, but that part of our business is what's really relevant to this discussion. So grain and crop processors are really critical to the global supply network. And we've certainly seen that in terms of what's happening in Ukraine, for instance, and disruptions in the supply chains there. Industry as a whole takes really seriously its role in supporting nutrition. Basically, that's what we do is we're moving nutrition around the world. And by most of the projections you see, we're going to have to feed 10 billion people by 2050. But we also need to do that in a healthy and a sustainable way. Again, so much more at the forefront of our thinking now is that balance. We can't lose sight of the environmental or sustainability goals that we have or the UN Sustainable Development Goals shared by society and so many other companies as well. So when we think about climate change, for instance, and reducing carbon, think about that in transportation in particular. It's not a luxury to reduce carbon, it's a necessity. And the transportation sector, like the agriculture sector, is a big contributor to carbon emissions. So that's where something like biofuels can really help to meet the needs of reducing the carbon footprint in the transportation sector. The estimate is 13 million tons of CO2 per year could be reduced by biofuels. Our challenge really is decarbonizing our supply chain and transportation is a part of that. So we contribute to those reductions by reducing our processing footprint, by working with farmers to sequester carbon in their soils, by changing logistics so that where we can, we're utilizing less fuel with shorter routes, for instance, or utilizing alternative fuels. Also by putting bio products into the world, that includes biofuels, but also alternatives to plastics and packaging, for instance. It's a dual responsibility, if you will. It's what we do in our own supply chain and working with our own suppliers in our own operations as well. And then the other piece is what we can put out into the world to actually help others to decarbonize as well. It's, it's agility and ingenuity and, and it's policy too. We've been having this discussion for so long about food versus fuel, in part because the biofuel innovation hasn't maybe matched early expectations about how efficient it could become and where it can be grown and rather than it being on your core corn soy rotation. Where do you see that? Has that met your expectation? How do we get to the next generation biofuels that we all have said that we've been looking forward to? Yeah. With respect to agility, I, I think that's that's part of it and innovation sort of mashes with that. So, you know, when you sort of look backward at the farm where there may be higher commodity prices, which we are definitely seeing around the world, that's encouraging more farmers to be in the marketplace. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to convert their property and plant a lot more. That couldn't happen, but and that's good for livelihood. But it but also could mean that some of the work that we've been doing and others have been doing to help farmers to understand how to farm more sustainably, meaning efficiently within their current footprint, is this is a real opportunity for those kind of conversations and that kind of innovation 
innovation on the farm. And that goes to inputs that are more efficient, to farming practices that are more efficient as well, cover cropping, no-till, even different seeds with, with higher yields of oil, for instance. We're not in all of those areas of the supply chain. So again, this is where we need so many others to be joining this voice. And in this case, talking to the farmer about what can actually happen on the farm. And then we are putting in place, and mo most in our industry, more crushing and refining capacity. So more of that is coming online, and that's helping to feed a, a renewable fuel demand. We can have these sustainable crops, and we can have more crop crushed in a more efficient way and closer to the market that it may be going to to reduce those transportation emissions. Industry has to be agile. We have to be able to optimize our production and to meet demand, whether that's feed or fuel. There's also a fair amount of ingenuity that's happening. I mean, there are a lot of statistics. Ours tend to be U.S.-oriented. Oil production and, and yields have really increased, particularly in the past 10 years and soybean yield itself. So like in 91, it was 34 bushels per acre and in 2020, 50 bushels per acre. So we do see so much ingenuity happening in the fields as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the farmer and worker component of this is so important. One of the things that, of course, is a topic that many of us are starting to think more and more about is what that just transition needs to look like, whether it be around energy transitions or just rural transitions as we think about these more sustainable practices. And how do we not have clear winners and losers along that? I would love to hear your thoughts as we think about, again, the balance between the food and the fuel side of things. How do we make sure that the farmer is getting their piece of the puzzle here and getting the right incentives and rewards through this system as we think about the, the transition, both here domestically in the U.S. for both of us, but also globally? Yeah, ADM is a, is a global company with global supply chains, and we certainly work with producers all around the world. So I think there's a lot of answers to that. The one model that we use, and, and not just in the U.S., is to actually provide more money for crops that are grown sustainably. And it's, it's not just about credentials around, you know, lower water use or carbon sequestration. But, you know, what we see and what we say to farmers is these sustainable crops are actually more resilient. They're going to be more resilient to farming that is in floodplains or in drought prone areas. In the extreme weather events that we see with climate change, it's really imperative to help farmers understand this. It's also a productivity issue. Healthier soils yield healthier crops from the soils. I think that there is, with our financial incentive, there is a real backing to what we are able to influence farmers to do and to try. We hope that eventually the consumers will want labeled foods that have sustainable credentials. And we don't think that's far in the future because we certainly are asked a lot about where food is coming from. And there's a lot more curiosity now, but I think there's going to be demand for things like carbon scoring, for instance, and more environmental credentials on product labels. That's going to pull demand for these types of sustainably grown products. And at the same time, that provides the market signal and hopefully a, a greater financial incentive for farmers. You know, one very complicated subject that's not really ripe yet is the potential that farmers can participate in a carbon market. So if they're sequestering 
carbon in their soils. No-till and, and cover cropping practices tend to be one way of doing that. Those transitions are costly. If they can receive compensation and then some by creating a carbon credit that could be put into the market, that's certainly something that a lot of us are looking into. Right now, I say it's not right because it's a voluntary market most places in the world. The price signals are not very clear. And frankly, the way in which farmers need to work to document that they've sequestered carbon in the soil is not very practical. They don't get credit for the practices they've already been doing, and they have to really keep them in place for a lot of years. And that's hard for a lot of farmers that don't own their land. Many, many farmers lease their land. So we have policy developments that need to be worked out there to create that bucket of incentives in a very robust way. But there's certainly that possibility. Yeah, I think that this area around how we create the right incentives is such an important piece of this puzzle and how we continue to look holistically across all of the different social and environmental benefits that that come through these different options and the trade-offs, right? Because there are trade-offs when we think about food and fuel and some of the other components that you've mentioned. And so how do we look across all of those? And one thing I would be really interested in hearing from your perspective, Allison, is how do you even think about making decisions within ADM about these types of topics because it's so complex. And I don't know if we really give enough time to how complex these journeys are internally, even within one company. So how is it that you're able to have a robust conversation like it sounds like you're having about food and fuel and incentives within a company that is mostly filled with business majors, Mm -hmm. I would expect? Yeah. One thing we realize is diversity of thought in terms of our workforce is terribly important. And this, for a lot of reasons, we need to reflect the cultures in which we're operating. But there's also an importance for us to have employees, to your point, who aren't necessarily steeped in agriculture or steeped in traditional type of business major. I'm one of them, I guess, as a person with a biology background and a policy background in law. But we definitely have more people coming into the company who have backgrounds that really help us to expand our thinking. And another way that I think we tackle this is through partnerships. It's not all about ADM or even our competitors, but others who are in our case, oftentimes in other places in the agriculture value chain who have knowledge and who have know-how that we don't. And we're a pretty popular partner, to be honest, because we have this know-how and ability to talk to farmers that a lot of our downstream customers, for instance, do not. Or even working with the WBCSD and organizations where there's a breadth of expertise and a breadth of stakeholders, not not all business, in fact. I think that's been really helpful for us to, to get that perspective and to have trusted conversations with people who don't always see eye to eye, but to be in a convening situation where we can actually have these talks and tell people, well, this is how food actually moves around the world. It, it doesn't move in a segregated package. It's procured from a farm and all the farms around that. And then it's put into a storage area. So different farm supplies are blended and then they're moved hopefully efficiently in one vessel to maybe to a port. And then they move from there and, and to help people to understand how complicated that is. So it's not so easy to put a requirement on one part of that supply chain. I think those have been really valuable communications and we need to keep those going as well. 
that piece around the partnerships is so interesting and important. And I think we're all still getting better at that, I would say, because the space around us is changing so rapidly that it's really hard for for any given organization to stay on top of things. Maybe if I could ask you for your advice for me and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, we are a membership-based organization, 200 plus companies. What do you think we need to do to really accelerate the the change and the support that we're giving to our members? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you have such a great opportunity because even when we just look around food, there are so many companies that are members at different stations of the value chain. The work that WBCSD is doing around convening. When we're able to have conversations with people in companies, particularly downstream from us, and to really explain we have very serious sustainability goals, and we have the same goals that they do oftentimes, for instance, no deforestation by 2025 in our supply chains. We are in this together, and educating about some of the challenges that they can help us to meet is important. Getting the financial sector involved, which is something that I think WBCSD has done effectively and can continue to do, is so important. A lot of the financial sector is very engaged and interested in, in what they call ESG, environment, social governance issues. They're even rating and ranking companies. They're making investment decisions in projects, in bonds, like green bonds, but also in companies themselves. And to turn the questioning that I receive from the financial sector onto and what could you do is always well received and fascinating. In fact, you know, where can you put that that money or that investment where it would make a difference? So like in Brazil, we're doing what we call a landscape project, and we're starting that through the Soft Commodities Forum, which I'm calling the SCF, which the WBCSD convened. And uh, we've been working to put more information into the public through the, the SCF for some years now. But this landscape idea is very exciting, where we're actually looking at the areas in Brazil at highest risk for deforestation, and we are identifying them and putting together a process to engage the producers there and local government and other stakeholders as well. Government's very important in this equation. And something as big as the WBCSD can engage and get the attention of governments too. And so we're, we're going to the local level in this instance, and we're talking to producers, understanding how they are seeing the landscape in the future and, and future demand for, in this case, soybeans and where it's going. And and educating them about how we're moving this around the world and how they can have more sustainable practices and avoid areas of native vegetation. To do that takes money, (laughs) frankly. You know, we need to give them incentives to sustainably produce. We need to have this effort grow and grow and scale up. Brazil is a huge place. So this this is a great place for investment, not just participation, but investment. And I think WBCSD's voice in bringing actors into initiatives like this is really a a game changer. It's a great example of our members really taking action and focusing on implementation, which is, I think, where we're at, right? Sustainability is a mainstream conversation now. As you said, you're having it in your boardroom. You're having it in your investor meetings, which I'll come back to in a second. It's nice to talk about that in theory. You really have to dive into place-based projects and work with your value chain and start to test these things out and put money where your mouth is to actually see if the transformation is possible and, and ensure that it becomes possible. Such a great set of aspirations that the Soft Commodities Forum is is working together on. 
as you mentioned, the investor piece, I, as you know, close to my personal heart uh, there, but I, you know, it would be really helpful to understand what kinds of questions are you getting from investors and others within the financial institutions, banks, what have you, and maybe what questions should you be getting that you're not? This has changed so much to Amy, just in the past two years. We actually have a sustainability committee of our board. Our board wanted to form that committee in addition to the legally required committees. It really tells you how important they saw this topic for our company. And that board has a broad remit. It's the environmental aspects of sustainability. It's human right and safety and diversity and equity as well. And certainly how we're approaching sustainability is a commercial issue as well. So it's a broad remit. I see more companies doing that. And I think it's because investors are asking more specific questions of their board members and of the company itself. How are you managing risk? How are you looking at the future of climate change impacts on your company? And how are you preparing for that? And what are you putting out into the public realm? What is an investor seeing and how does an investor compare one company to the other or feel comfortable that those risks are being managed? There's some guidance that's happening now on financial reporting to give companies a better sense of how they should look at that so that the investors can compare us fairly. But at the same time, with that guidance out there, investors are saying, okay, start using this. You know, We want to see this in your financial disclosures. And we've been ramping up in those financial disclosures for quite some time now. And there's also in the U.S. a potential you know, rule, regulation that is actually already proposed for financial reporting, especially around climate change, maybe not as broadly as sustainability. So that may be something that changes in the future. Investors are used to be asking, do you have a sustainability officer and do you have a sustainability report? And this is very, very different now. So they're wanting to know how sustainability is integrated into our strategy. And that it really is a long-term priority for the company. And some, some investors are really looking at us and other companies as a long-term investment. So it's a perfectly logical question for them to ask. And companies that are disciplined to quarterly reporting are really having to kind of go through a culture change. How do you literally report and measure your progress in a way that it can be audited on something that has a 15 or 20 year trajectory? So I mentioned deforestation free by 2025, or we have our Strive 35 goals, that's our decarbonization and water and energy goals, and they're on a 15 year trajectory. And we have five year milestones, but we're also reporting at in our sustainability report annually on our progress. What other question do we get? Sometimes it's, why didn't you make more progress this year? Or why does it seem that this, this goal is sliding backward a little bit this year? Well, that's what happens when you're trying new technologies, when your production goes up, and therefore some of your emissions are going up, and then you're adjusting and you're seeing that. It's really a great way to look at the long-term goal as a way to manage that annual activity. But we'll get questions the more we put out there. We get questions about whether we're on the right track. And it's a great discipline. What I think investors could be talking more about is those social issues. It's hard to measure a lot of the social issues. Sure, you can look at your workforce and see who's working here now, but what can you put in place for the future in terms of goals that you can really meet? Our company is very oriented to not putting goals out that we don't have a pathway to meet. It may be an aggressive pathway, but but we don't want to say this is our goal and we have no idea how to get there. We're really looking a lot at the social issues and, and human rights in our supply chain and auditing facilities we do not own. And we do not really have a right to obtain information from unless it's volunteered to us. So how can we tackle that and really get a, a clear picture? 
of something like human rights and farming. I think those are questions we're hearing more from investors, and I would expect they should be asking more. Uh, that S piece of ESG, we see that emerging as well. And it's a, a really interesting one because the number of KPIs that you could explore on something that is as broad as all things social really makes it quite challenging to tackle. And how do we start with the most salient areas and, and go from there to your point? That's great. Perhaps in our last moments here, if you could give some advice to one person who's just emerging and maybe finishing up their university time and starting mm -hmm. to get interested in sustainability, where would you have them start as they explore this area? And then maybe to your peers, those who are leading sustainability in companies, what advice do you have for them? I'm just so lucky to have the opportunity to talk to both young people and peers. It's some of my favorite things to talk about, how to get into sustainability and where I see that we have needs. For young people, and it's so great to see so much interest now, I say it's great to have a sustainability certificate or degree. Those are, those are being offered now and they weren't in the past. But sometimes somebody like me is looking for some specific expertise as our companies. And so something general like sustainability knowledge or a sustainability certificate is great to have in addition to a core skill, which could be accounting or law or business or certainly something on engineering and science and innovation. How can we talk to food manufacturers about rethinking their oil mix so that we're freeing up soybean oil to go back to our original topic here so that there's more available for biofuels? That innovation is a really important conversation to have. So somebody who's got that ingenuity, that science-based, chemical-based, or engineering-based background, but looking at their expertise, how can we solve problems? How can we do something real about the food and fuel dilemma? That's an incredibly valuable skill to have. I'd say think of your education and your opportunities in that way. For my peers, I think we're pretty fast recognizing that there really isn't competition in sustainability so much as opportunity for partnership. Certainly there's commercially sensitive information and certainly there's antitrust boundaries. So we're all aware of those, but we're also much more willing to have conversations about how we can help each other. And here's something we tried to decarbonize a facility. We're not at the core an energy company. And so working with energy intensive companies or actual utilities, energy companies really gives us you know, great ideas. We can also avoid some mistakes that have been made. And so having those conversations are important. As I've said many times here, working with other stations in the agriculture value chain before our downstream customers set their goals would be terrific if they talk to us about what we can do to help them and what's clearly possible. And they can push us and, and we can push them. I think being a person who gets out of your office, it's so common in the sustainability space to be fairly short-staffed and to these days have a lot of reporting responsibilities to boards, to investors, to rating and ranking entities, et cetera. You can really spend 24 hours a day in your office, but I think it's important for peers and decision makers to get out and have those what's possible, what are you doing, what are you trying, how can we help each other conversations, very important. Collaborate, 
innovate, transparent communication, all key along the way for us as we try and tackle these big transformations that we seek. I want to thank you for all of your insights on food and fuel and beyond. Allison Taylor, Chief Sustainability Officer at Archer Daniels Midland. Great to be here. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you.